Hello friends, Hero here. We're due a short break here at Monstrous HQ. Matt and I will be taking the next two weeks off. That means no episode on Thursday the 4th or 11th of January, but we'll be back with episode 9 on Thursday the 18th. We're still around on social media though, so you can chat to us there or get in touch through the website. Look after yourselves and we'll see you soon. Travelling Light Episode 8 Entry SH85024-8 a discussion of the role of the orchid species Tears of Ilion in preservation and propagation. Keywords Botany and horticulture Environmental concerns Natural world Orchids Scientific research Tears of Ilion Notes As Annalisa and I took the transport back to the docks, she showed me the specimen she'd collected that day from the nearby wetlands. It was a species of orchid known locally as Tears of Ilion, after a piece of folklore that related its creation to a sad tale of doomed love. But I do not think it deserves such a melancholy name. It is very beautiful. Annalisa had collected it in a glass-sided container, so the gorgeous chaos of its roots were visible. This species is not a particularly rare one, she told me. It is found all over the wetlands and woodlands of this part of the planet and grows extremely well when transplanted to alien soils. That's why it's so important to my research. I don't know if you know this, but orchid seeds are absolutely tiny. They look like motes of dust. They're so small they don't actually have enough room in them to store a food supply for the seed itself. Instead, they develop a symbiotic relationship with fungi, which attach themselves to the seed. The orchid feeds on the fungus until it's developed enough to start photosynthesis. Now this is the interesting part. One of the reasons orchids don't tend to do well outside their natural habitat, on a foreign planet, for example, or in a growth medium aboard a ship, is because they don't have access to the right fungus. They've evolved alongside whichever fungus is specifically available in their home habitat. So every time somebody wants to propagate a new species in a lab or off-world or anywhere else, they first have to find precisely which fungi that species of orchid is able to form a symbiotic relationship with. And then they have to work out how to either grow the fungus itself or replicate its properties. It is enormously time-consuming and expensive, as you can imagine. The vast majority of orchid species have never had their symbiotes catalogued, let alone had them reproduced, and the fact is, most won't. Which in turn means they can't be grown anywhere except where the fungus is naturally occurring. Which is all very well and good, provided nobody has any plans to build a town on top of that natural habitat, or to turn it into a tilly track or whatever. (laughs) But tears of Ilion are different. 
Something about this species means it's able to form a symbiotic relationship with really any fungus that comes its way. That's why it's so easy to propagate off-world. But you can imagine how exciting that is. If we can find out what it is that makes the tears of Ilian so adaptable, perhaps we can introduce that trait into other species. Perhaps we can create strains of glowbulb or mountain foxflower that are as resilient as the tears of Ilian, that can be propagated and grown successfully all across the galaxy. Wouldn't that be something? I agreed that it certainly would. And is there, I asked, any particular benefit to the plants you could treat with this method? Medicinal uses or something of that nature? Annalisa laughed. Why, I had not taken you for a cold-hearted pragmatist. I don't know a single useful trait for any of the species this method would protect. But I think we would be much the worse without them. All the same. Don't you agree? 24th Shadok 850 continued. Annalisa was keen to switch out of her powered leg braces and back to the comfort of her mobility chair, so I volunteered to take the specimen she'd collected that day down to her laboratory and save her the trip. This done, there was just enough time to wash and dress before dinner. Not that it is a very formal affair, you understand. It's only that I feel a little self-conscious among the scholar's robes and Wolf and Aman's uniforms when I am in the well-worn, much-mended clothes that I prefer during the day. So I freshened up a little and found something to wear that did not have too much visible darning. For a change of company, I sat with Hestia, Dr Deutron and Operator Aman. The conversation was pleasant enough, mostly concerning a natural phenomenon taking place later that night. Have you heard much of this? Hestia asked me. I confessed I had not. Really? Dr. Sarbeck's been telling anyone they can catch. I didn't think it possible they might have missed anyone. <laughs> Let me see if I remember correctly. I believe it's a kind of tiny bioluminescent creature that lives in the planet's southern oceans. Once every few years, they swarm or flock or whatever word it is. Breeding, I assume, or feeding, perhaps? Sarbeck would know. Breeding, said Aman with certainty. It is rather a feeding frenzy, but only for the creatures that eat the swarm itself. And, naturally, she added as an afterthought, the things that prey on them. I see, I said. Must be very important for the ecosystem, an event like that. Aman gave me an opaque look. Quite. Hestia broke in. It's supposed to be quite beautiful. That whole part of the ocean lights up in these fabulous colours. Operator Aman is a difficult person to read, but I think I saw indulgence on her face as she said, I expect we'll be able to bring the ship around to the right spot, if you like. Hestia's face lit up. Oh, that would be splendid! Do you really think? Aman gestured indifference. We are scheduled to launch later tonight. I think we can allow ourselves a small detour. 
Hestia was delighted. They bustled off to tell the others and to start making plans to watch the phenomenon from the observation deck. Dr. Deutron, who had been quiet for much of the meal, watched Hestia with a look less indulgent than sardonic. I've heard of this phenomenon. Apparently, it was worshipped once by the people here. They saw it as some kind of visitation from one of their gods. After dinner, most people retired to the common room. Sarbeck and Hestia, meanwhile, were so taken with the promise that we could view the phenomenon, they stayed behind in the refectory with Wolf to try and coax some suitably celebratory snacks out of the automated culinary system. I wished them all the best with that endeavour. I was in my room when we uncoupled from the dock, with all the usual noise and vibration. I came out into the corridor with every intention of going to the observation deck to sit with the others, but I found myself hesitating. The corridor stretched out in both directions, up to the observation deck and down to the other cabins. I turned and made my way downwards. There is something happening you may wish to see, I told Early when they opened the door. It should be visible from your cabin window. I had meant only to let them know, lest they'd miss the news, keeping to their cabin as they do. It seemed a sad thing for them to miss out on. But they stepped aside, gesturing me in. Please, come in, they said. I had to laugh when I saw their cabin. It was, in essentials, not very different from mine, save that it seemed Early's luggage had suffered some kind of rapid decompression and strewn the place with all manner of glittering robes and folds of finely embroidered fabric. I, I do not have many visitors. It is all clean, they said apologetically, moving a pile of clothes from one spot to another with no discernible effect. There is just not so much storage here as I am used to. Uh, oh, do sit down. The desk chair was in use, so I took a seat on the bunk. Early sat beside me, and for a moment, neither of us spoke. I'm not hosting you very well, am I? <laughs> my parents would be appalled. I am making a note of it, I said seriously, and their eyes danced as they heard the humour in it. Then, we would be better at the window, I think. That is where we shall see it. Early blinked. Oh, of course. Shall we? Their cabin window is a little larger than mine, and we stood together in a comfortable silence, watching as the planet streamed past below us, landscapes slipping into one another like falling water. Finally, the toller came to a stop, hovering in a place high above a vast, dark ocean. We were not the only ship come to watch the phenomenon. I could see others dotted around, their lighted windows shining against the black. At first, I took the light below for another ship. But it began to grow, spreading out from its centre, until it seemed the whole ocean was filled with green and gold. The lights, the swarm, moved in swaying, swirling sweeps, drifting on some strange current. 
I did not realise how far forwards I was leaning until my head bumped gently against the window. I looked and saw Early doing the same, their face lit up with fascinated joy. They used to worship it, I said, whispering so as not to break the moment. They thought it was a god. Early did not raise their eyes, but their smile, usually so rare and quiet, beamed forth. Well, wouldn't you? We watched the swirling lights for a long, long time, hardly breathing in the quiet. Then, beneath our feet, the toller's engines started to surge. The spell broke, and Early looked at me for the first time since the swarm began. They were breathless and flushed, as if they had just woken from a pleasant dream. Will you stay? they asked. I would love to. That pleased them, I could tell. Then a flicker of doubt crossed their face. I have no... Uh, they began, and interrupted themselves with a sudden thought. They rummaged around in their belongings until they pulled out a small box with an intricate pattern on the lid. Nestled inside were several shiny, jewel-like sweets. Early's eyes were bright, though their smile had returned to its habitual reserve. They pointed out one of the sweets. This one is my favourite, they said. But there are two in the box, so I am prepared to be gracious and permit you one of them. Oh, my friends, <laughs> it has been a day of such kindness, such warmth. I could not wait to share it with you, so I am writing this now rather than tucking myself up in bed where I belong. But with a heart so glad, I am certain I shall sleep very well. I am sending this with all my love, as always, and I wish you all days of kindness and of warmth, just as you deserve. Travelling Light was created by H.R. Owen and Matt McDyer and is a Monstrous Productions podcast. This episode was written and performed by H.R. Owen. This week's entry to the archives was based on an idea by H.R. Owen, with accompanying artwork available on our social media accounts. If you've got an idea for an archive entry, we want to hear it. You can send us anything from a one-line prompt to a fully written entry through our website, by email, or on social media. For more information, see the show notes. If you want to support Travelling Light, please consider leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice. You can also make a one-off donation or sign up for a monthly subscription at ko-fi.com slash monstrousproductions. Supporters will receive bonus artwork and additional content, the ability to vote on audience decisions, and an invitation to the Monstrous Productions Discord server. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. The theme tune is by Vinka.